All right, well, this uh, past August 21st, I did something I'd never done before. And I'd wager a good number of you guys did, too. I donned a pair of eclipse glasses and stared at the sun as it was partially obscured by the moon. Uh, All across the U.S., people gathered to see the spectacle. But one of the things the news I was following on that day stressed was the need for protective eyewear. So without the appropriate glasses, viewing that eclipse could cause irreparable damage to the human eye. I hope you all took good notice of that. You all looked at me straight in the face this morning. Because we know there are limits to our sight, right? As we stare into the sky, we see clouds and stars and sometimes even planets, but we don't see much beyond that. And even small things like a strand of hair and a grain of salt are some of the smallest things we can see with our naked eye. Beyond that, we can't see much more at all. One of the repeated themes throughout the Bible is that one thing our eyes absolutely cannot look upon is God. So Exodus chapter 33, God tells Moses, you can't see my face. Why? For man shall not see me and live. It's that serious. So I wonder, is, is that it then? We can view an eclipse with special glasses, but no protection will work for us to see God. Well, the past three weeks, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament that help us understand this Advent season, the season of anticipating the coming of Christ. So we've looked at Genesis 3, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 53. We've seen the prophecies of the Savior, King, and Servant to come. And now on this, our final Advent Sunday, we come to the Gospel of John and we see the King has come. And he's no ordinary King. He's God in the flesh. So Ed just read John 1 for us. Let's look at two things briefly this morning. uh, First, the Word of God. And then second, the Word of God made flesh. So first, word of God, look there in verse 1. John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, We see as we continue reading in the passage that John uses this title, the word, this name, to refer to the Son of God, to the one who would come and take on flesh as Jesus Christ. But why does he use that title, the word? It seems sort of vague. I mean, isn't the Word of God something we use when we're talking about the Bible, like open your copy of the Word of God to so-and-so? Well, as we see the Word of God all throughout Scripture, we see that we can go all the way back to Genesis 1, which is actually what John is hearkening us back to with John 1. And we see in Genesis 1 that there's darkness. And at that very beginning, God creates how? By his Word. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 33, verse 6, we read, it was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. So the word of God throughout scripture creates, it breathes life, it gives life, but it does even more. It executes God's plan to save and to judge. So you might remember the passage in Isaiah Chapter 55, where the prophet just lays out this beautiful invitation to come to the water and drink. This message of salvation from God. And then, listen to what God said through Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So from these passages and others, we see God's word, God's words operate in a phenomenal way to reveal him to us, to humans. It reveals his plans, his saving purpose. So D.A. Carson puts it well, as he often does. He says, in short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. So, so Jesus is the word. So still, what's that about? Carson goes on and shows that Jesus, uh, John, is actually using personification here. He's attributing this element of God's word to a person, to Christ. And I think if you think about it, it makes sense. God's words are his self-expression. Jesus is God's ultimate self-expression. He's the ultimate way we know who God is. I mean, do you see that? The, the words of God are the ways he shows us who he is right here, what he's like. Jesus is the ultimate word showing us who God is like. And folks, I know that's complicated. As I came to this text this week, I just wrestled with what it meant. Like, I've read John 1.1 1, 1 for a long time. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But I've never stopped to think, what does it mean that Jesus is this word? Why would you apply that title to Christ? I think one of the answers to that question is that it, that title that John uses draws our minds back to the Old Testament all throughout Isaiah and then back to Samuel and then back to Genesis and reminds us of all the power and might of God shown through those thousands of years before Jesus came. It shows us who this Savior in the manger is. I, I mean, look where John goes there in the next few verses after one. He just shows us how majestic this, this word is. He says, The word was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. He was the agent of creation. Through him, everything was made. And that didn't include him. He was not one of God's creations. He was God, John stresses. That means he, he pre-existed the world. He pre-existed existence as we know it. As Jesus himself will say later in John in chapter 17 as he prays to his Father in heaven, he'll say, glorify me, Father, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus it's not just a tool in the hands of the Creator. He was the Creator. And here we see clearly again the truth of the Trinity, church. God is one being in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. And there is one God. John focuses in on that second person of the Trinity. He says, that Son of God... Look at him. He's the upholder of the universe. And so we see also in Hebrews chapter 1 where that author says, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And listen to this. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. One of the most crazy verses in scripture. He upholds everything 
we exist right now, this very second, because he's upholding us. And John's just like, okay, maybe you didn't get that, because I'm going to put it in the negative in verse 3. I'm just going to say, without him was not anything made that was made. Just so it's clear, Jesus is the essential one. Without him, nothing is. We're not here right now. And John goes on to talk about important motifs and concepts like life and and light that we could preach whole sermon series on. But I just want to stop here and be amazed at Christ as the Word. Paul says in Colossians, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Church, this is the one who would come and take flesh. Before we can marvel at the baby in the manger, we need to marvel at who that baby was but from before time began. He's the son of God. I mean, can, I, I want, after this week of looking at this passage, I want, and I hope you do too, to just let our minds be blown up a little bit by who Jesus is. He's not the, merely the blonde-bearded, soft-eyed man of the Sunday school stories. It's not just the baby in the manger. It's not just a good teacher of morals and peace. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. He's very God of very God. He's the upholder of the universe. Every plane is held in the sky. Every mountain has been formed. Every ocean tide is held back. Every iceberg breaks forth from its moorings. Every child breathes in and out as he sleeps. Every constellation is given light. Every spin of the earth is on its axis, sustained by that Jesus. There's no one greater. We can talk about power struggles in this world. The talks going on between nations about nuclear arsenals and disarmament and all the power plays that are being executed. That's peanuts. That's nothing. The Son of God holds everything together. Just forget the baby in the manger for a minute. John hasn't even gotten there in chapter 1. He's simply fixing his eyes on the Son of God, the eternal, powerful Word. The the nature and character of that Son of God should be enough to blow our socks off. This is the God we can't look upon without dying. Far greater than eclipse. This is the God of justice and righteousness and power and authority. Let's not diminish him in our minds. He's the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. And with with our minds fixed on that Son of God, we come to the next part of John 1, and it's the greatest shock in the history of the world. The Word of God made flesh. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we mentioned last week, this truth is called the incarnation, meaning the the enfleshing, the putting flesh on of the Son of God. It's the truth of Christmas, this eternal, powerful Son of God taking on weak human flesh. Mark Jones writes, The incarnation is God's greatest wonder, one that no creature could ever have imagined. God himself could not perform a more difficult and glorious work. 
Christians, see this word of God, this son existing from eternity past before this world and all other worlds were even created. Expand your mind, if you can, and think about the greatest being you can even think about thinking about and then multiply that exponentially and you still haven't begun to scratch the surface of comprehending this word of God. He's utterly other, beyond our comprehension. See that word of God putting on flesh. See that king humbling himself. See that powerful, almighty one, upholder of the whole universe, being upheld by a wooden manger. That sight, church, stops us in our tracks. It's the most wonderful news we've ever heard. J.I. Packer writes, Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the Incarnation. No Hemingway, no Dickens, no Tolkien, no Shakespeare could ever have begun to imagine something as fantastic as this. Word of God made flesh. Christian, in, in light of this incarnation, do you see how your pride crumbles to the ground? How your airs of superiority, my airs of superiority, look so incredibly silly? Church, may our vision be reoriented this Christmas. In our sin, we exalt ourselves, not this one who made us. We promote our own glory, not his. But as we consider this incarnation, that sinful nearsightedness begins to correct. And those gospel glasses bring everything into crystal clear focus. We see who God is. We see who we are. We see his love for us. Love that humbled and humiliated itself for us. Christian, where do you have where do you have your hackles up against God this morning? Your your prideful defenses raised up against him. Where are you kind of gritting your teeth as you read your Bible and and just come along those texts that sort of poke and prod and convict and Just like, nope, not now. Maybe you're willing to entrust yourself to this king, but not your marriage. Maybe you're willing to confess your sin to this king, but not your secret habits of sin on the computer at night. Maybe you're willing to say, God is all you need, unless he doesn't provide that spouse or that child or that home. Friend, lower your defenses. See the king who went low for you. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. See this word dwelling among us. That word dwelling calls us back to how God used to dwell with his people Israel in the Old Testament how he would come and meet with them in a tent or a tabernacle. And John's making the point. Remember that, folks? Remember that tabernacle where you'd see God's glory come down? Look at Jesus. 
He's tabernacling among you. He's God's greatest tabernacle. He's God's presence with you. He is God's greatest word. God's greatest self-expression. And Christian, let's follow suit with John's admonition. Let's look at that Christ humbled and let's be humbled ourselves. Look at verse 14. It's Christmas in a nutshell. God has come and we have seen his glory. He's humbled himself to take on flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Again, Carson writes, this word, God's very self-expression, who was both God and with and who was God, with God and was God, became flesh. Family, this is the greatest act of love, of stooping low, of condescending that the world has ever seen and ever will see. When we could not ever hope to look at God, to reach heaven, heaven came down in the form of a lowly servant in whom we saw the very image of God. Mark Jones puts it provocatively when he says, Jesus drank from his mother's breast and Jesus provided his mother with that milk to feed him. Is there a greater picture of humble love? If there is, I ask you, show me. Verse 18, then, summarizes this shocking truth of the incarnation perfectly. John writes, no one has ever seen God. Remember, that's what we said at the beginning. We can't see him. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In Christ, we see the very image of the invisible God. In Christ, we see God in the flesh. And and here's the incredible thing. If we would ever see God, as Scripture promised, we would die. But in Christ, we see God in the flesh, and we don't die. Inexplicably, he dies. The Word of God becomes flesh, but that's not all. The word of God becomes flesh so that that flesh can be torn by a whip, nailed to a cross, undergo death, the judgment of God against the sin of the world. Son of God, come to undergo the wrath of God for our freedom. Church, we can never grow tired of this news. We're sinners. Rebels against God, rightfully deserving his judgment. But at that precise moment that we hated him the most, he came to us. When we rejected him, he came to us. He laid down his life as a sacrifice in our place, taking on himself the full judgment of God for our sin. As we'll sing in a moment, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. The man Christ Jesus, bearing our sin on himself so we can enter God's presence free of fear. We can't see God. 
but because God has made himself seeable in Christ, we can one day walk through heaven's gates with perfect spiritual eyesight to behold God. Friend, if if you're here and you're not a Christian, you will meet God one day. And you will either meet him as the judge judging you for your sin, or as the judge judging Jesus for your sin. Which will it be? Please, won't you lay down your pride? Won't you repent of your sin? Won't you trust in him? And Christian, church family, what of us? How ought this truth impact us this Advent season? Well, let's conclude this morning and conclude our Advent considerations this December with three applications as we head into Christmas Day. First, Christian, let's be in awe this Christmas. I'll admit, I I was preparing this sermon this week and it hurt my brain. As I try to understand these 18 verses and then try to apply them faithfully to you, family, I was stretched. Uh, I was so stretched, I called up one of my friends who I trust, who's also a pastor, and, and asked him to, to help me if I, if I was misinterpreting anything or missing anything. I just wanted to apply this truth of the Incarnation rightly. I didn't want to say anything heretical. I didn't want to miss the big points. I mean, how can we truly see God in the flesh, in the person of Christ? How how does the spiritual put on physical? How can God stoop so low? I I can't wrap my mind around it. And and on that FaceTime with my friend, I was just putting my head in my hands. It was so hard to comprehend. It was so wonderful to try. And, and as I was, my head was in my hands, my friend just looked at me and he said, what we're talking about here is knocking on the door of glory. In a way saying, you'll be fine, don't worry about it. Church, I think we need more of that awe in our hearts this Christmas. As we read that Christmas story, we're knocking on the door of glory. So have you lost some of that vision of who Jesus is? Has it become just that precious moments figurine on your tree? Or a, a pen pal that you write occasionally when you're in, in need of help? Or is he up the upholder of the universe? Taking on weak flesh and giving himself for you. No one has ever seen God. And in Christ, the word becomes flesh. First, let's be in awe this Christmas. Second, let's be joyful this Christmas. I love how Tim Keller puts it when he says, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Christian, the incarnation shows us the lengths to which God has gone to save us. It shows us how awful our sin is. It killed the Son of God. And then it shows us how much God values us, how much he desires to save us, that he would send that only son to die. Do you see how much he loves you? Uh, Christian, you're free to rejoice in this today. 
You don't need to earn his approval anymore. You don't need to worry you'll stand before his judgment seat and be sentenced to hell anymore. Jesus underwent hell for you. We're wretched sinners, but in Christ we're redeemed saints. That's our identity. What a reason to be joyful. And third and finally, let's be expectant this Christmas. So as we've been saying this season, the flavor of Advent, the meaning of Advent is is looking back and looking forward. There are two Advents in world history. One has come and one's coming. One came 2,000 years ago when Jesus came as a lowly baby in a manger and one's coming any day and he's going to be coming as a king like Brad showed us in that book before. The word of God became flesh and the word of God is coming again. In the book of Revelation, which is about the times to come, we, we see again from the pen of John, the same author of John chapter 1, a description of the coming king. And listen to this. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Church, see the word. All the way from Genesis, the agent of creation, traced through to John, where he becomes flesh, and then ending in Revelation when he comes again in glory. Jesus created us at the very beginning. He's recreating us into his image, and one day he's going to come and glorify us forever. That's our king. Darkness will not overcome him, as John says in verse 5. So brothers and sisters, whatever you're doing tomorrow, whether it's going to be a festive day, a stressful day, a sad day, remember the ultimate tragedy of a king taking on the form of a servant, a king being rejected by his own people, a king hung on a cross, has proved to be the ultimate victory. That king reigns now forevermore incarnate, and he's your king. So let's pray that he would come quickly, that if he sees so fit, he would bring that second advent even today. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this Advent season that gives us the the opportunity of, of journeying through your scripture to see your salvation plan that culminates so wonderfully in Christ, that that stump that sprouts and shows that life has come. The rescuer is here. Lord, we are in awe because we know our hearts. Who are we that you've chosen us to be the recipients of your grace? Who are we that we can stand up and sing in a few seconds, God and sinners reconciled? We're lost if you never came. But you did. 
And so we find all our hope, all our joy, all our meaning, all our peace this Christmas, not ultimately in family or nostalgia or tradition or gifts, but in you. Help us to enjoy those things as gifts from you. And keep us until you come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. Amen.